If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, we really want you to have a Bible in your hands because we want you to hear everything with your ears, but we want you to see everything with your eyes uh, that's being spoken about. So there are men coming up the aisle right now. They've got a stack of Bibles. Just give a wave to them, get their attention, and they'll get a Bible into your hands. Luke's Gospel, Chapter 2. Verse 1, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. And so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child, great with child, I might add. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, the, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign that you, uh, to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the sayings which were told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this record of yours of the birth of our Savior. And I just pray, Lord, for myself and each one of us that stands in this room right now that is saved. We pray that you would never allow us, in the power of your Holy Spirit, to ever become indifferent, Lord, to this great event. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, a spirit and an attitude of celebration that marked those early shepherds to mark our lives once again as we think about our Jesus being born into this world. Lord, we pray for each man and woman that stands before you who is not yet a Christian. They have not yet trusted in Jesus as their Savior. And we pray that our time in your word this morning, by your Holy Spirit, would make something click for them today to see the greatness of their need, Lord, in your eyes 
and the greatness of your provision for their need in Jesus, and that today would be the day of their surrender and coming into the life that you have for them. And we ask these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In our text this morning, we have Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. And in reading this account, I don't think that any of us can uh, ever lose sight of the fact as you're just even a casual reading of this, and, and I'm always impacted as, as I do read it, is that, that, that whatever else is happening here in this scene, what is going on here somehow is very, very exciting to heaven. Something about the birth of this child has heaven absolutely excited because as we read the events that are just involved in the birth announcement concerning this child, we read so much of the supernatural. An angel of the Lord announcing the birth of this child, a angelic choir, an angelic host showing up on the scene with a group of shepherds as their audience to describe to them and declare to them the birth of this baby, and then all of this praise being directed to God as a result of what it is that's happened here in the birth of this child. And so I think that we ought to know a little bit about what heaven is so excited about here. And of course, it's God's intent that we would know why heaven is so excited about the birth of this child. That's why the passage is recorded for us in God's book. From heaven's perspective, Christmas is all about the birth of a Savior. I tell you, I never, ever cease to be impacted by the Word by the word Savior. It always hits me, the strength of the word, as it's used there in, in verse 11. And it tells us, as God uses this word Savior, it tells us that in the eyes of God, man is in need of saving. The word Savior, the word save, these are danger words We use them to speak of people who are in great danger, people who are in some kind of a life-threatening situation that they need to be delivered from, they need to be rescued from. We save people from burning buildings. We save people from burning cars. We save people from drowning. We save people from bleeding to death. And when the Lord uses the word Savior concerning us, he doesn't use it for, you know, impact or some kind of exaggeration or to try and get some kind of a false effect in us. He uses it to describe how dangerous our spiritual condition is in order to get us to understand the urgency of, of our situation and our need to be saved so that we don't put off our salvation not for one more hour, let alone one more day or one more week or one more month or one more year. Notice that the Savior has come into the world in order to save us from our sin. What is sin? I think that most people, people don't use the term sin anymore. 
So it's, it's hardly used in the culture anymore. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I won't go into it today. But I think that when people do hear the word sin, in my experience, to them the word refers to some extraordinary wrongdoing. And the term sinner should be reserved for the extraordinary wrongdoers. That the person who is a sinner is somebody like an armed robber or someone who mugs an old lady or someone who is like an axe murderer or something like that. These are, these are, are sinners, not the rest of us. But God defines sin simply as to be less than perfect. Our English word sin comes from the Greek word hamartia, which means to miss the mark. And the word is intended to produce an image in our minds, and the image is of an archer who goes out into a meadow, sets up a target out in the field. And, and as he sets this target up complete with the bullseye, he pulls the arrow from his quiver, he sets it down onto the bow itself, pulls back the string until he hears all of the sounds of the tightening of that string, and he aims that arrow at that bullseye, and he launches that arrow, and if that arrow hits the bullseye, he hasn't sinned. But if he tries even as hard as he might to hit that bullseye, trying's not good enough, and he misses the bullseye, whether he misses the bullseye by an inch or he misses it by a hundred yards or a hundred miles, he still has missed the bullseye, he's missed the mark, and thus he has sinned, he has been less than perfect. The Bible teaches that all of us are sinners. Every single one of us is a sinner. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. Each and every one of us has been less than perfect in our lives. Now, some people are greatly put off by being called a sinner. And again, I think because the culture now has completely redefined even the term sin and moved it away from God's definition of what sin is and what a sinner is. But you call the average person a sinner, or you inform them that God views them as a sinner today, and people can sometimes become very offended by that, again, because they view sinners as being some extraordinary uh, wrongdoer, or at least someone who's a little bit worse than, than they are. And they're a good person, a moral person, and I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as my neighbor two houses down. Now, there's a sinner for you. That's how we view it sometimes. But the biblical definition of sin is to miss the mark. And the mark is perfection. It's to be less than perfect even once in life. It is to be less than perfect in our actions. It is to be less than perfect even one time in our words. The Bible says the tongue is set on fire by hell itself. Who hasn't hurt another person? with their tongue, either face to face or behind their back. It is to be less than perfect in our thoughts toward other people or other things. It's to be less than perfect in our motives. A person can do a good thing 
for a wrong motive. I can do a good thing for a selfish motive. I can do a good thing to try and manipulate you. And that good thing is spoiled by the motive, and it's sin. Sin is to be less than perfect, even in the area of the sin of omission. The sin of omission is to know to do good in a situation and to fail to do it. A passiveness, an inactivity in the face of great need is a sin in the eyes of God. It is to be less than perfect. One of my favorite definitions of sin in all the Bible is in 1 John chapter 5, verse 17, where John writes, and he says, all unrighteousness is sin, unrighteousness as God defines it. Anything that is wrong in the eyes of God, whether passive or active, speech or doing, it's sin. Now, when I look at that and when a person understands that to be the definition of sin, to be less than perfect, I think to myself, who in the world can argue with God's assessment of each and every one of us as sinners? Who can clamor against it? Who can fight against that assessment? Who can see it as anything other than just good, plain clarity and honesty on God's part toward us? Now, in sending Jesus into the world, heaven sent a Savior— And that is the single greatest word that should come to our minds when we think about Christmas and we think about the birth of Jesus, even when we use Jesus' name. When we talk about Christmas or the birth of Jesus, even any mention of Jesus at all ought to immediately produce within our minds supremely that one is a Savior. He is a Savior. Jesus' name, Jesus, is a contraction of a Hebrew name, Jehoshua, which is a contraction of a name of God, Jehovah Shua. And all three names mean Jehovah is salvation. Every time Jesus' name is used, it is intended to remind us of the fact that he came into the world to save sinners from their sin. He is a Savior. Now, if you were to ask me this morning what I thought about, uh, what I thought were the two greatest self-inflicted things that keep people in our culture from accepting Jesus as their personal Savior when they hear God's offer of, of salvation. I mean, after a love for sin and darkness and that, what would be the two great self-inflicted things that keep people from accepting Jesus as their Savior? And I would say, first of all, the, the, the first thing would be a failure to understand and accept the fact that we are sinners by God's definition. If I do not recognize that I am a sinner, I will never recognize my need for a Savior, and thus I will never receive Him or never appreciate the gift that He is. I will never appreciate what heaven is off the graph excited about in this passage as we read it in the Bible. But the second thing that I think, and I think it is the bigger of the two that self-inflicted things that keep people from accepting Jesus as their Savior when they hear about God's offer of salvation is an unwillingness to understand the seriousness of sin. 
an unwillingness to take the seriousness of sin seriously. Even if I can get someone to admit that they are a sinner by God's definition, there's a great tendency on the part of most people to view that condition as no big deal. And I think one of the reasons we view our sinful condition as no big deal is because we just look around, we say, after all, everybody else in the world is a sinner, so why make such a big deal out of it? And so rather than seeing this sinful condition as a sign that there's something terribly wrong about mankind, that there's something terribly fallen about mankind, we just accept it all as normal and as acceptable because everybody's just like this. I run into very few people who will not admit that they are sinners when they understand God's definition properly. The far harder thing is to get people to view that condition as serious, to take the seriousness of sin seriously. And God takes sin very, very seriously. It's really important for us to realize that sin is a really, really big deal. The Bible teaches that there is a penalty that must be paid for our sin, that our sin deserves judgment, that our sin deserves the judgment of God. The universe that we live in is not our universe. It's God's universe. We rent here. We have a long-term lease here. The world that we live in is not our world. It's God's world. We're just stewards of God's world. And just as there are penalties for breaking the law in a city or a state or a nation, there, are, there is a penalty in this universe for breaking God's law because God is perfectly holy and because he is perfectly just. Every violation of his law, that is every sin, must be punished. If he did not punish those who break his laws, if he just casually kind of overlooked and accepted and tolerated sin, he could not be holy, he could not be just, he could not even be loving. Who in the world would want to live in a city or in a nation, number one, that did not have laws, and number two, did not enforce those laws. Nobody wants to live in a city or a nation or a world that doesn't have laws and doesn't enforce those laws. And so it is with the universe. God has laws, and he enforces them. And he wouldn't be just and holy or loving if he didn't. Sin has ruined the whole world. And God is not going to allow it to ruin heaven. Concerning the penalty of our sin, the Bible declares, for all have sinned, and here's the consequence, come short of the glory of God. We all live way below, apart from the Savior, way below what God ever intended 
for human beings. Also in the book of Romans concerning this penalty of, for sin, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. And that's what your sin deserves. And that's what my sin deserves. I deserve judgment for my sin. I deserve hell for my sin. I really do. And you do also. I don't argue with the fact that my sin deserves that consequence, that judgment. I'll tell you, in my search for God through life, that brought me ultimately to a place of surrender to this God of the Bible. I had a hunch within my heart, I had a hope within my heart, that when I finally came into contact with this God who would inform me of what the purpose of life is and the meaning of life is and all of these things, my hope was that when I found him that he would be holy and that his home would be holy, that heaven would be holy, and I wasn't afraid of discovering the fact that even one sin in my life would disqualify me from entering into a relationship with him on my own or entering into heaven on my own. Can God be so holy that but a single sin, much less a lifetime of sin, could disqualify us for it? And the answer is yes. And I'll tell you something, it's a wonderful truth. Don't fight against it. Don't view it as something hard or horrible or terrible. It's a beautiful thing. That God is that holy, that heaven is that holy, don't try and fashion God into the image of sinful man. Don't try and make heaven into what this world is. Let God be high and holy. Let him be the high and holy God that he is. Let heaven be the high and holy place that it is. Don't take that from me. Don't take that hope from me. Don't take that ideal from me. Don't take that reality from me or from the human condition and expect half of us to remain sane. I'll tell you, as God is my witness, when I sought after God to come to know God, I did not want, at the end of that search, to discover that God was, as the old song goes, just a smarter and more powerful slob than I was, or a more powerful or wiser version of sinful man, just a bigger and more powerful sinner or manipulator or con man. I didn't want to discover at the end of the search that that's what God was like. I wanted to discover a holy God and a holy heaven. And when we come to the Bible, that's the God and the heaven that we discover. I like God being holy. I don't have a problem with it. I like the fact that heaven is holy. I don't have a problem with that. But I still want to be saved. Now, in this vein, I'm very fond of an old Puritan quote that goes like this. The righteousness of God is that righteousness which God's righteousness 
requires him to require. There'll be a test on that at the end of the sermon here. It's wonderfully put, but the translation is essentially this. He cannot ignore the seriousness of sin and be a holy God. He cannot ignore the seriousness of sin and be the God that he is. Well, in our culture, very often God is dismissed with a statement like, well, I just can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. And the problem with that statement is that it puts the responsibility for where a person spends eternity completely in the wrong place. It's blame-shifting. And the view is prevalent in the culture because we live in a, a, a nation of blame-shifters. However, do you see people come up and say, I take full responsibility for that. I was wrong there. What do I have to do to make it right? When's the last time you heard a politician say that? An athlete say that? A neighbor say that? Is a disappearing thing within the culture. And so there's this tendency to, to want to take and shift the blame of where I end up in eternity and put the blame upon God. God does not determine where you and I spend eternity. We make that decision based upon what we do with the Savior that He has sent. And then one day when we stand before Him, He will simply confirm the reservations that we have already made. He simply holds us responsible for the decision that we have made concerning our eternities, for our choice. The fact of the matter is that God has done everything that He can short of forcing us to put our trust in Jesus in order that we might end up in heaven. Do you want to know what God's heart is towards your salvation today if you're not saved? The Bible declares in 2 Peter that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Maybe you've come into this room today, and you say, I wonder what would God say to me? Today. You know nothing about the Bible. You know nothing about the God of the Bible. But you're on your search. And you say, what, what is God's will for my life? His will for your life is that you would not perish, but that you would come to repentance. He is your creator, and he longs to save you. Now, sin is a really, really big deal because of the judgment that it deserves, and indeed the judgment that it requires. There are many, many consequences to sin, but the greatest and the most long-term consequence has to do with our eternal destination. And if you do not trust in Jesus, if you do not trust in heaven's Savior, you will die in your sins. And you will spend eternity in what Jesus himself described as an eternal lake of fire where nothing dies, not even a worm, and where it is dominated by wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's not my view of that side of eternity. That's the view, the revelation of the baby that was born in Bethlehem. Well, that's, a pretty, that's pretty heavy for a Christmas message, isn't it? Christmas is heavy. Christmas is heavy. 
The passage is filled with sin and sinner and save and savior. That's what's at stake in all of this. These are the words of the Lord. These are the promises of Christ. And I think that every person in this room and every person in this world has a right to know the kind of danger that they're in. And it's my responsibility to deliver that message so that you can then make the right decision concerning Christ and decide yourself right out of the danger that you find yourself in. I hope that God will convince any of us in this room this morning who are undecided about the seriousness of sin, your sin, to take it seriously. I hope in this moment in time, in your three score and ten, for the 40 minutes I have you, whatever you do with the rest of your life, my prayer and my hope is for this time this morning in God's Word that if you have never considered God's assessment of you as a sinner and you have never given serious thought to how serious your sin is, not in the eyes of your neighbor or your mother or your father or your friends, but in the eyes of the God that you will one day stand before, that today will be the day that you will soberly consider the seriousness of your sinful condition because it is only that that will then wake you up to the urgency of your condition and cause you then to turn and receive the Savior that God has sent into the world. Do you realize that there is an even more sobering and horrifying picture of the seriousness of sin in the eyes of God recorded in the Bible than even God's description of hell. And it is God's description of a perfect, holy, sinless Son of God stripped and hanging on a cross, nails through his hands and his feet, a crown of thorn wedged upon his head, his whole back and chest and shoulders opened up with the scourging, covered with the spit of man and the blasphemies of men, even as he hung on the cross to save us crying out to God on that cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It isn't the description of hell that instructs us concerning the seriousness of sin supremely. It is the cross of Jesus Christ where he, that is the Father, made him Jesus who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What is God's motive in all of this? What is his motive 
and assessing us as sinners and being so honest and so clear with us. Can you find anyone who will be honest and clear with you? I hope you have one or two in life. They're rare. God is honest and he is clear. Why? And what's his motive behind sending this Savior into the world? And his motive is love. It isn't to belittle us. It isn't to humiliate us. In the same way that a doctor doesn't take any joy in informing a patient of theirs with a life-threatening disease that they have, but will break the hard news to them in order to get their attention and to get their sobriety about their condition so that they will then take seriously the prescription that he gives them now for the cure for their particular disease. And so to the Lord lovingly makes us aware of our condition in order to get our cooperation in addressing this disease of sin in our lives. It would be unloving to diagnose us as sinners and then not to send us a savior. It would be unloving to diagnose us as sinners and then to dance around and mock us and humiliate us over the condition. But God doesn't do that. He diagnoses us in his love, and then in his love, he provides a Savior to save us out of that sinful and lost condition. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John writes elsewhere in his first epistle, in this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the satisfying payment for our sins. Paul wrote to the Romans and he said, but God demonstrated His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And what will happen to me if I trust in Jesus as my Savior? Will it result in some miserable condition? It will result, in the words of the text in verse 10, it will result in a life of great joy. It will result in the words of verse 14, a life of peace. Because the first time, for the first time in my life, I will have the joy and the peace that comes with being forgiven, the joy and peace that comes with having a personal relationship with God, the joy and peace that comes with living life how God wants me to live and how God has created us to live and all of the blessing that comes out of that. So often you'll see at Christmas time, and I don't mean to make fun of people or things, but so often you can get a card in the mail and, you know, you've got religious cards that have scripture in them, usually from Luke or Matthew or Isaiah or something that talk about the real meaning of Christmas. 
And then there are the other cards that don't want to be preachy or they don't believe in the true meaning of Christmas, but they want to make people feel good. So they'll talk about, may you have great peace and great joy during this holiday season or something like this. As if peace and joy are self-existent things. They are not self-existent things. God talks about peace and joy, the availability of them, the reality of these things in our life, because they are not self-existent or independent things. They are, they are what come into our life when we receive the Savior. They are completely dependent upon first receiving the Savior. There is no peace. There is no ultimate joy in life apart from receiving this Savior. Look at the shallowness of the culture that we're in in the United States of America. I hate where we are in this economy. And as much as I hate the incompetence that led us into this place, I hate the solutions that are being offered to it at the moment. Enough about my problems. But one thing I don't hate, I don't miss those last two, three, four years before this economic collapse where this country was involved and people individually involved in a commercial materialistic orgy. To go to a place and see someone pull up in some beat-up old car and they've got a 900-inch television that they're trying to tape down on the front and then this thing and that thing and all piling on and charging the whole deal and heading out. And what we've got as a culture here is we've got a culture that's all dressed up with no place to go. We've got all these things. We've got all this stuff that we surround ourselves with, all this stuff that we... we pour into our appearance and all of this kind of stuff, but we have no soul, no understanding of what the meaning of life is. We've been created by God, created for a relationship with God, that there are things that must be introduced into our lives that need to be introduced to our lives that only God can introduce into our lives and we are less than half a man or a woman. We're not even a tenth of a man or a woman or a hundredth of a man or a woman until he brings those things into our lives. Peace and joy come with the Savior. You cannot find them independent of the Savior. And that's why they're spoken of by God as a gift to man in the context of a Savior. I'm raising my voice now <laughs> because these things mean so much to me. I lived 25 years of my life in the emptiness and the frustration of life apart from living with God and for God. I know what I'm talking about. I know what emptiness is. I know what frustration is. And I know what this life is. I know what joy is. I know what peace is. And they come with the Savior. Now I want you to notice finally in verse 10 that this Savior is given to all people, which will be to all people, he says. God will save anyone. I don't know how good that makes you feel. It made me feel real good when I heard it, because I knew I was a sinner. There isn't anyone God won't save. 
that he won't forgive today. Not Jew, not Gentile. As the old saying goes, there are none that are so good they don't need to be saved, none so bad that they can't be saved. There is no human being God will not forgive and no life he won't change if that person will trust in the Savior that he has sent. This gospel invites all men everywhere to put their trust in the Savior that God has sent into the world. And so the passage teaches us three great facts. First, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. Second, the seriousness of sin in the eyes of God. And third, that Jesus is that Savior. If you sit here today and you have not yet made Jesus your personal Savior and Lord, I lovingly urge you to take the seriousness of your sin in the eyes of God seriously. And God knows that if a person will do that, it will cause them to then run to the Savior and to put their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. No one who takes eternity seriously, no one who takes heaven and hell seriously, no one who takes God seriously, no one who takes their own sin seriously fails to run to the Savior that God has sent. Now listen. If you don't know the Lord today and you said, boy, of all the luck I had to go to this church, I was just looking for some little perky Christmas message and this guy had to lay all that out. I don't know that I'll have another Christmas to preach it or that you'll have another Christmas to hear it. Things are happening so fast. The world is just spinning so crazily right now. I felt to emphasize this great subject today, the leading of the Holy Spirit, in the hopes that there would be one or two or five or ten of you in this room today where you would sit and say, that makes sense to me. And then give your life to the Lord today. You're the one or two or five or ten that I'm after today because I think it's you that the Lord wanted to just say amen to some of these things as you heard them so that today would be your day to personally receive his gift of a Savior into your life. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after this service, and they're going to have a badge on that says prayer, so you can identify them easily. And they would love to pray with you and answer your questions, to put your trust in Jesus as your Savior today, and then give you a Bible and some literature to help you get started in that personal relationship with God that begins with all of this. Salvation 
is a free gift. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. And the reason that God can make salvation a free gift is because God has done all the heavy lifting in this salvation. We do the receiving. But because He's a loving Heavenly Father, He loves to have it this way, and it blesses His heart to see people simply receive the one thing that only He could provide for us. Receive Jesus as your Savior this morning. Let's stand together and we'll pray.